Okay, let's get started. <laughs> All right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we're continuing on, and, um, and we've reached this point in the, in the, um, in the Apostles' Creed where we, where we make a transition from talking about uh, the, especially the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to this speaking of uh, those last things that we believe, right? I believe in one holy, I believe in the holy, um, what is it? Uh, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. And, and the, the purpose of these is just to establish in very quick, one-off, the sorts of things that we believe. Um, but they are important, very important, as you'll see. Uh, and one of the things that's often uh, uh, very comforting or uh, potentially a challenge about uh, uh, studying uh, uh, Anglicanism through the lens of this catechism um, is this idea of the church that is um, a bit different from what many have experienced in the past. And so I want to kind of prep you by saying, well, that's part of it. And so you've got to kind of get that in your frame of reference. Uh, but as well, I feel the need to say um, that uh, there's a much deeper sense in which we say these things. Um, and when it comes to the church, this is one of the things that um, I, I think needs to be said. Um, C.S. Lewis once said that to say that we believe in the church is to say that we put some manner of trust in the church um, to deliver the truth to us, to uh, speak the truth to us, to hold us to the truth. Uh, and this is an important thing today, especially when we, we tend to live in such an individualized culture. Uh, and, you know, cultures are always kind of on the on the fringe, right? There's always like a, or they're always on the, on the bubble, right? Are they going to be individualistic or are they going to be kind of like a hive, a, a beehive where, where nobody does what's good for them, they do what's good for everybody. And, and this, is, this is part of the struggle in American life especially is this, is this deep struggle between are we loyal to the communities that we're a part of? Are we, are we loyal to the nation? Or are we loyal to only to ourselves? And I think if you ask most people, they'll say, why can't it be both? <laughs> it's like, well, this is, this is a struggle, right? Um, very often, people grow up with this sense of, I decide what is true for me, um, and so no church is going to tell me that. Um, and I think, I think what I want to assure you of is that there is always a sense in which the individual struggles with these things, right? There's always the sense in which we are... Uh, we are working through it. But there's also this sense that we very much need, which is that um, uh, what Scripture teaches us surrounding the church is things like the church is the bulwark and pillar of the truth. Well, what does that mean, right? It's, it's, it's to say that, um, that, uh, that the, the truth of the faith is upheld by the church, and we, and we put some manner of trust in the church to deliver that to us. Um, I say that even as many people have been through the ringer because of a church. They've been, uh, they've been harmed, they've been hurt, they've been traumatized, they've been uh, uh, dropped by the church, and, um, and, and in ways that are lamentable, to be sure, um, and in ways that God does not 
desire to be the case. Um, but I do think it needs to be said that, that uh, most people today need to put more trust in the church to deliver them the truth uh, than they do. And that includes me, right? Go ahead. Right. Right. Well, in a lot of ways, it's something like, you know, I trust medicine. I'm, there might be doctors that I don't trust, right, <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, and there are doctors who are bad doctors, right? But the fact that there are a few bad ones doesn't mean that the whole practice is shot. Um, that might be one way to look at it. Um, but I think there's something much more mystical going on here, which is, which is what I want to get into. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, um, yeah, I got, I got hurt, I got harmed, and so therefore I can't trust that. Um, and, and, well, well, we'll get into it, but, but the marks of the church, um, as stated in, in the creeds, um, are, are really essential to understanding not just uh, what the church is as an organization, but who the church is as a living organism. And that's really where I want to go. And, and it's to say that the teaching of Scripture is not that um, the church is a kind of organization that you just sort of sign on the dotted line and you say, I'm a member, and that's it. It's, it's an organism to which you are joined. It's a living body to which you are, um, you are made a, a member in the sense of like an arm or a leg or a hand or a foot or a finger. Um, and, and that's much bigger. Um, so let's, 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 let's jump in. We're on page 49. This is question 92. What is the church? The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth, called and formed by God into one people. The church on earth gathers to worship God in word and sacrament, to serve God and neighbor, and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church is the whole community, so this is an important part uh, as well, is that the church does not exist in parts, sort of scattered parts. Um, the church exists as a whole community, um, and, and one, so the church is one. This is one of the marks of the church. This is the very first one. It's, it's one. Now, we'll say more about that, but it means that the church is whole, and it does not uh, sort of break down. Um, it's, it's really what Paul says in, in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is with all and in all. And, and, and he goes on about this, speaking about the unity of the church, because the unity of the church is founded upon the unity of Christ, um, who is one. Again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, this is really hard to grasp, and we'll say, I want to say more about it. But you know, if that's true, then why do we have a church on this corner, and a church on that corner, and a church over there, and a church over there, all of them professing different things, all of them having their uniqueness, and all of that? And, and it's there that I really want to start to put forth the challenge and put forth this question, uh, but we'll get there. Um, but first, the church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth. So, the way we normally conceptualize it is, well, the church is just those people who happen to be walking around and happen to be alive, and that's it, and we don't know anything about the dead, and what do they matter, and, you know, so on and so forth. Well, no, uh, one, of the, one of the essential things in the way Anglicanism sees the church is that the church is all faithful Christians of all time and forever. Um, and, in fact, uh, we owe them something. Um, we, uh, we owe them uh, the 
the, uh, the maintenance of that faith. We owe them uh, the proclamation of that faith, and, uh, and so that's an important thing as well. Called and formed by God into one people. So, uh, who makes the church? Okay, this is really, a, this is like an essential thing. So who makes the church? God does. Um, we don't make the church by simply saying, oh, isn't it great that, you know, we agree and, and we're on the same page. Isn't that wonderful? And then we say, okay, so we're a church now. Isn't that great? Like, and, and then that's it. Right? Um, and I think there's a lot of that. And I've seen a lot of that in, in kind of church planting. Is like, it's something like this. It's uh, in joining a church, I need to find a church that aligns with what I believe already. Okay? And so I'm going to jump into that, and then I'm going to find one that most closely resembles what I believe. Okay. And, and listen, I get it. We live in a weird American system where everything's voluntary. You get to join whatever church you want, and nobody's sitting there saying, you must, you must. No one's doing that. Um, there's, not, there's not a state church. There's no, no church has a privilege. I mean, it's all of that. Um, but I think we need to rethink it just a little bit. How does this work? Well, God forms this community of Christians. God forms the church into one people. Um, and we can say how that works. The church on earth gathers to worship God in word and sacrament. So this is the first word that I really want to impress on you when we talk about the identity of the church, is this idea of gathering. Um, the name ecclesia in Greek, which is the name for the church, um, and if you, if you wonder, how did we get church out of that? <laughs> and, and it actually is etymologically tied to this ecclesia kind of, um, uh, you, you will know that uh, in, in French, the, the term for church is église, right? Uh, the term for uh, church in, uh, in, um, in Italian is chiesa. Um, well, as it gets mixed into Germanic, you get this kirche, Right? church, kirk, church, right? Um, and so it is tied to this, to this word. Uh, the term ecclesia in Greek is a pre-Christian term, and it was used to describe the gathering of the, the democracy in Athens. So all those that gathered to take counsel together in Athens are called the ecclesia, the gathered uh, group who makes decisions together, who elects leaders, things like that. They're gathered. And it would have been about, um, you know, in, in the time of Athens, would have been about 5,000 people. Um, well, here's the fun part, right? Early on in the church, you get this kind of number. It's like, well, you know, 5,000 people or 3,000, right? Um, it's right in that, right in that realm. Um, but the church has this identity of being gathered together, right? Gathered from the nations, gathered from all over. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, terms for this comes, I believe, from, uh, and you'd have to check me on this, uh, golly, I can never remember the author, but, but it's one of these kind of like Southern uh, Catholic authors who says, you know, the best definition of the church is here comes everybody. Um, and, and it's very true, right? Um, I've had the, the wonderful joy and privilege of worshiping together in groups of thousands with, uh, with Christians from all over the world, every hemisphere, every, every continent, every nation, um, and, and it's just an amazing thing. Um, I'll never forget, you know, we have these, these meetings called the GAFCON meetings, and uh, I've been to three of them, and uh, one of the things that we did in Jerusalem twice now is gather people on the steps which lead up to the Temple Mount. 
which is where uh, this great event on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 took place. And we've got Christians from all over the globe together on, this, on these steps. And, and that gives you a sense of what that means, this gathered people. And again, not just those who happen to be alive, but all throughout time. Um, which, you know, let me, let me just say this. In, in Christian art has always been a centerpiece of Christian art to remind you that you worship with the saints. So one of the things that you'll see in, in old medieval churches is at the altar, you'll see these giant things called reredoses, and they're basically a series of niches where they put statues of the saints. And, you know, uh, if, you, if you ever go to England or you go to a, 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 um, a parish church, uh, that, that's a big one, right, or a cathedral, you'll often see this. Um, and uh, in fact, when I was when I was in o- Oxford last year, um, the the oratory church where Tolkien worshipped was right next to my accommodations, and so I would go in there on my way down the street, and they have this giant uh, uh, reredos with all of these saints, um, and the same is true in a lot of the colleges. So uh, Magdalen College has this you know medieval uh, uh, backing altarpiece that's just giant, right? And it's it's the saints. And it's to remind you that in the Eucharist, you are not just with those people who happen to be alive, but you're with the whole community of the saints, right? The whole church is gathered. Um, and this is important, right? Um, and, and I should say this, how do, we, how do we speak of this scripturally? How do we speak of this biblically? Because a lot of people say, well, oh, you're saying that, but is that true? And here's the answer. It's like, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Well, What's that mean? It means the whole church is constituted every time two or three Christians gather together, right? Why? Because Christ is in the midst of them. He's gathering them together. Um, And so, one of the things I really want you to see is that when we gather together, we, we are the church. And it's, in fact, in the Eucharist that we become even more so the church, if such a thing was possible. Um, and that's, that's, a big, that's a big deal. Um, because what is it that gathers the church? It's it's being in Christ that gathers the church together. Um, if we keep going, and this is why we say that the, that the church gathers to do what? To worship God in word and sacrament. Okay. Well, you'll notice this in the liturgy. There are two halves to Christian liturgy. Um, there always has been, uh, and uh, in fact, it's a rather new idea that you might have a kind of um, uh, preaching-oriented liturgy alone. Um, in the ancient church, uh, those who were not yet baptized would attend the liturgy of the Word, but not the liturgy of the table, the altar. Um, they would simply attend the preaching, and there would be some, you know, some music, some things, you know, there. What, what's essentially happened uh, for a lot of reasons, right, um, in America is that the, the, the liturgy of the Word has been, in fact, severed and exalted from the liturgy of the altar. Um, why is that? Well, the answer comes because the Methodists um, were a kind of evangelical society in England, but they didn't want to disrupt the English parish life. And so what they did was they said, well, okay, you should go to your local parish church on Sunday mornings and we'll gather these Methodist groups on Sunday nights for preaching and hymns and all of that. But the idea was go back to your, you know, it was, the Methodist movement started as a, as a part of the Church of England. It was a kind of a renewal movement in the Church of England. And when the Methodists came to the United States in this, uh, the, the Great Awakenings, 
Um, that was what they were doing. It was hymns and preaching. That was it. And it's that that became the, the dominant, I would say, uh, Protestant liturgy in the United States. It's kind of three hymns, a sermon, and that's it. And that got translated to Sunday mornings so that you have this detachment from that. But it used to be even that uh, Baptists would have a liturgy of word and sacrament. They would have, um, you know, and, and most of the time that would be the case. Um, I would also say, too, that one of the things that's very new in, in the, the, well, that's a return or, or a revitalization has been this idea that Christians ought to be receiving the Eucharist right, more regularly. Um, and that is universal, so um, whether you're Roman Catholic or, in fact, the, I think the only people who have maintained, and they would be very proud of this, they are very proud of this, the only people who have maintained regular Sunday communion are the Orthodox <laughs> throughout this whole thing. It's like they just never gave it up, and good for them, right? Uh, you know, if you ever talk to an Orthodox priest, they'll just say, well, you know, whatever we do, we've been doing it for 2,000 years, and, you know, it's just, it's always been that way. And, <laughs> and, and you know, that's a that's a pretty substantial claim, actually. <laughs> so, uh, but one of the things I want you to see is that, uh, that it was very rare that Christians would, would receive communion of, of any stripe, whether you're a Baptist or, a, or uh, an Anglican or, uh, or a Roman Catholic. It was kind of considered to be once a year, twice a year, three times a year, four times a year. That was it. Um, but what's been revitalized, and this is actually coming to be the case in many, many churches, is this understanding that word and sacrament have to be the, the, the form. Um, why? Well, uh, primarily because it's what we, what we see in Scripture, right? Um, think about it. following the, the baptisms um, on the day of Pentecost, what are we told of the ancient church? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I would actually say to you that this Acts 2.42 actually is probably the most, um, the most early description of Christian liturgy that exists. Um, why would I say that? <laughs> you don't often think of the verses like that as being descriptive of Christian liturgy. Well, think about it. Um, just, just for a moment. What does Christian fellowship subsist in? Potlucks? Pick up basketball games? right? Like, no, it, it subsists in the communion of the saints. It consists in the Eucharist. What's that? Yeah, whatever it might be, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not just in like, oh, we all have the same bumper sticker, or the same, like, you know, fish on the back of our car. It, it, is, it is that, um, that we uh, uh, have fellowship with Christ in the Eucharist. This is, this is one of the things that John says in 1 John is, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Right? So this fellowship that, that he's calling people into, that his joy may be complete, Paul does the same thing, is, is this communion fellowship with Jesus Christ. See, the apostles' teaching and fellowship actually is descriptive of something that happens in the liturgy, isn't it? The, the apostles' teaching is proclaimed, and, and back then it was the apostles' teaching, right? And the church is devoted to it. They're devoted to that fellowship of the apostles. Uh, to the breaking of bread, which is not just sort of, it, it actually is both things. It's both sharing meals, but it's in the context of that meal, sharing in the Eucharist. Because in the early centuries, actually really in just the first century, there was continuity between these meals that Christians shared together and the Eucharist. They were one and the same thing. Um, in fact, Paul speaks about this, that 
what was happening was uh, you know, people were showing up to these gatherings expecting to be fed. And what was invariably happening was that uh, certain people were getting left out. And we actually see this in the reason that the apostles established the diaconate, is people are being left out in the distribution of food. And so how do they solve that? Well, they, they put people in charge of making sure it's more equal. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, but Paul says, you know, do you not have homes to eat in? Right? So, so part of this is to say that, uh, that very early on, the meal portion becomes detached from the ritual Eucharistic portion. That happens in the first century. Um, and it's to the point where um, the eating and drinking in the Eucharist becomes a separate thing from a meal. Um, but that, that's to say that, that this breaking of bread is explicitly, and I want to say this strongly, it's explicitly Eucharistic. Right? Um, it's not just a reference to eating together. Um, and finally, the prayers. And the prayers have always been considered in Christian liturgy to be a part of the liturgy of the table, not a part of the liturgy of the Word. And in fact, the, um, it's still this way in the Eastern Church, and it's still this way in the Western Church. Um, the liturgy of the table be can, begins with the prayers of the people, essentially. Um, so in the Eastern Church today, like if you go to St. Nicholas in town, uh, it's their big patronal feast today, actually. Uh, if, you, if you go over there, you'll hear, uh, you know, someone say, usually the priest or the deacon, it's supposed to be the deacon, but if you don't have a deacon, the priest has to say it, uh, the doors, the doors. What does it mean? It means kick out the catechumens. They can't watch this part because they're not Christians, right? <laughs> they haven't been baptized yet. They can't participate in the prayers. Um, that's the old tradition that's there. Um, so all of this is to say that these are the, these are the things that bind Christians together. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going on too long about this. Um, to serve God and neighbor, right? What are the great, what's the great commandment? The first and great commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, uh, we're reminded of this every single Eucharistic liturgy as Anglicans. This is, this is right in front of you. Um, I should say, though, uh, it's, it's classically in Anglican liturgy been a stand-in for reciting the Ten Commandments. So it used to be you got the Ten Commandments, and we still do that in Lent instead of reciting the Summary of the Law. But the Summary of the Law is, 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 uh, is important, and I think we need, to, we need to put it front and center. Um, so that's where we are. We, can, we, we, we read this, and it's, it's spoken every single Sunday, every single uh, Eucharistic liturgy. It's to remind the church who we are. I would also say, too, this is really important. If I was to ask you, what is the most important thing you can do to love your neighbor, what might you say? Like, make sure my neighbor's eating. <laughs> like, make sure my neighbor has good health care. Like, make sure that my neighbor doesn't, you know, have any needs that are not being met. Okay, fine. Classically, uh, Christians have said the most important thing you can do for neighbor is to pray for your neighbor and actually uh, 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 see your um, participation in the Eucharist as, as an evangelical act on behalf of your neighbor, which may be just a new way to cast it. But consider, consider what we talked about, right? Um, it seems like it's a very insular activity. How are we loving our neighbor when we're cooped up in a church and, you know, <laughs> our neighbors are outside, right? Um, well, I think what I would say is that the Eucharistic life of Jesus is given to the church for the fueling of the mission of the church. And so we come here to be able, by God's grace, to serve our neighbor better. Um, and, uh, and that's something we have to be reminded of constantly, is that um, one of the great you know, ways to think about that is you may have heard the, um, and you may have 
Roman Catholics call the Eucharist the Mass. Um, and it's a reference to being both a meal, but also this, this word of misa, um, sending. Um, so the idea in, that's, that's there is, um, and, and the reason you get that name Mass is, um, is at the end in Latin, it was always ite misa est, which means that's the dismissal, right? And it, the literal meaning of ite misa est is, this is the dismissal. <laughs> um, what does it mean? Well, it means um, you're being sent out from the church. Um, um, uh, fueled by the Eucharist for the mission of the church. That's the understanding that's there. Um, so, so keep that in mind, right? It's all tied together. And, and this is why I'd say, you know, at the heart of understanding the church's mission, we have to understand what the church is. And if we don't know what the church is, then mission is hindered by that. Um, and I'll say, say more about that. Um, and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus establishes the church to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, and, um, and this is how it works. Um, it's not, you know, ind it's never individual Christians kind of going to the borders and, and undertaking these missions. Um, there are always, always, always groups going out. Um, if they're to be effective, that's how it works. All right. How does Holy Scripture teach you to view the church? Holy Scripture teaches me to view the church as God's family, as the body and bride of Christ, and as the temple where God and Christ dwells by His, Holy, by His Spirit. Um, so there's a lot going on here, but Holy Scripture does teach these things, uh, and if you want to look them up, you can look up the references there. Uh, but the, the Holy Scripture teaches me to view the church as God's family. Okay? So the first thing we see, one of the first things we see in the New Testament is that, uh, and we really see it most explicitly, in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we'll get to that when we go in the Lord's Prayer, uh, part of the Catechism. But how does Jesus teach the church, teach his disciples to pray? Our Father. Okay. So, this is the thing, you, in the very center, this is, there's so much going on here, I could go on forever, but, but, but let me just give you a basic, okay? How can God be our Father? How is that possible? Well, it's, it's because of adoption, right? Um, Jesus Christ uh, rightly calls the Father, Father, and He invites us into His fellowship as members of His body, and it is through that membership in His body and through that adoption as sons and daughters that we're enabled to say, our Father with Him. Okay? Really important. Um, so, so there's a family relationship going on here, the Father, um, and in many ways, and I, I kind of want to highlight this, this is, this is almost written into the kind of human code of how we think about the world and society and how we think about God. Um, everybody's got something like this. Everybody. I mean, the Egyptians had Osiris, right? Osiris is the kind of father who, uh, who is... Uh, um, is it Osiris? There's Osiris the female. I can't remember. Anyway, there's a, there's a father figure, right? And the father figure is always kind of remote and always kind of not terribly involved. Um, and and but but what do we see in 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 Judaism and then in the New Testament? We see that the father is actively interested, actively involved, um, wants to know you and me. Um, 
And this is a big, this is a big deal, uh, the, way this, the way that this switches. Um, God's family. So there's an understanding of a family. Um, furthermore, this is, this is prevalent in the Psalms, too. You know, the, the psalmist says um, that the Lord takes the solitary and sets them in families. Um, so this is an understanding that, um, that uh, every Christian is a member of the family of God. Um, furthermore, as the body and bride of Christ, so there's, there's two parts here, right? Um, what happens when a man and a woman get married? Jesus talks about this, so does the Old Testament. The two shall become one flesh. So how many bodies of Christ really is there, you know, are there? Well, uh, there's one body of Christ, uh, but I think we can talk about it in three different ways. We can speak of the risen and ascended body of Christ. We can speak of the body of Christ in the church, and we can also speak of the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And actually, in reality, those are the same thing. So, so this is an important uh, concept to get, which is that, um, that there's actually continuity in the body, and we speak of the body of Christ in these three ways, um, but, but there, there's continuity there. Um, the bride of Christ... Um, Paul, of course, speaks of, of the, the body of Christ as the bride of Christ, um, and, uh, and, and Scripture is replete with this kind of language throughout. Um, and, and Christians have understood things like the Song of Solomon to be a, a, um, a, a love song for the bride, um, and they have uh, interpreted it through the lens of the gospel. Um, and, uh, and seen it in that typological sense of casting forth this understanding of, of the bride of Christ. Um, so all of that is, is there, right? That's why the church is called she, right? In feminine terms. Um, and it's not to say that the church is a woman. It's to say the church is feminine, right? And if you're confused about that, because, you know, confusion seems to be in the air these days, uh, to be feminine is what? Yet to be a receiver, right? Um, and this is always the language there, is that um, in language, the feminine is that which receives, and the masculine is that which gives, right? So, uh, and this, you know, you may, be a you may have done some plumbing, and you know that, uh, that in, in plumbing terms, you've got male and female parts, right? And, and that's, that's, the, that's why those descriptors are used, right? Um, is because they accurately describe that. Now, um, but, but that is to say that the church is the body of Christ is that which is always in the position of receiving, right? Um, and and it's, it's not that we give God anything. Um, it's that we're received, that we receive him, right? Um, and, and think about that. We receive Jesus Christ in the faith. We receive Jesus Christ in baptism. We receive Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. We receive Christ in our brothers and sisters in the church. Um, this is huge. It's just a massive thing. Um, Basil the Great even goes on to say that the, that the posture or the, or the character of every Christian before God is that of a female being. Why? Well, because we, we receive Right? It's not to say male and female, it's to say masculine and feminine. This is, this is kind of an important, uh, really important concept. Um, okay. And, <laughs> finally, as the temple where God in Christ dwells by His Spirit, what does Jesus say about destroying the temple? Destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. What's He speaking about? The, um, the temple of His body is what... Is what uh, 
the, the gospel writers say. Um, and of course, we see this in what? The resurrection, right? He, he, his, the temple of his body is destroyed, and the new covenant is ushered in in the resurrection of the dead. Okay? So he, he, he rises uh, to new life, and that new life is, is uh, and I think we can say this very strongly, is multiplied into the church. Um, and, uh, and to such a level that, uh, that Christians understand that the church is the temple of God. Why? Well, because God indwells it. And I want you to understand this because it's really important. The temple in the time of Jesus walking the earth um, was a shadow of its former self. Um, you may remember that. When, when David begins the building of the temple and when it's complete under Solomon, um, there's great hubbub about welcoming the ark into the city of David. Um, this is when David dances before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it's a major moment. Um, what's going on is that God is now dwelling with his people. Well, fast forward to about 597, right? What happens in that year? Well, the Babylonians sack the city of Jerusalem, and somewhere or other, the, the Ark of the Covenant gets dragged off. And the descriptions of the temple, the first temple, is that there had been a, a cloud of glory, this kind of Shekinah glory that had covered the temple. Um, and not only that, but, but, uh, but pillars of fire, and it was a very mystical place, like lots of wild things going on, and, and uh, and, uh, and, and a very dangerous place to be, actually, uh, but, but far more mystical. When they come back, maybe 60, 70, 80 years later, and the temple's rebuilt, um, it is a building. That's it. Now, sacrifices are done there. Uh, there's a Holy of Holies. But everybody gets, and everybody should understand, that it is not what was there before. Why? Because God is not there. Um, God has left the building. Um, and in fact, uh, in those days, they were waiting for the return of, uh, of God, not in the Ark of the Covenant, because most of them assumed that it had been destroyed, um, but, but in the Messiah. Um, so this is a major, a major theme in the New Testament, is that even though the people have returned from exile, they are still exiled. Because it's not that they're exiled from their homeland, it's that they're exiled from God. Um, and, and that's a major theme, right? Um, and of course, following the New Testament, uh, and in, in the, right in the time in which the New Testament's written, half of it, I think, uh, the temple's destroyed by the Romans. Um, and so, uh, ever since, uh, Judaism, Judaism has been a, a religion without the temple at all, and uh, the church has taught that and has used the language of temple for not only the buildings where we gather. They, in, in the ancient church, they didn't call the building the church. The church was the body. They actually called the building a temple. This is really wild, is the temple, um, when they were able to start building, you know, dedicated buildings. Um, they would often call them uh, basilicas, too. This was kind of a, a, um, another term. Uh, but the basilica was a, was a, uh, was a Roman idea, right? Um, there were basilicas in pre-Christian Rome, um, but they were places where this, uh, 
these, these gatherings took place, right? It's, like, it's a place of gathering, right? Um, okay, I'm going on a long term, but, but this is to say that what makes this church um, holier than the second temple, I would say that strongly, is the dwelling of God by his Holy Spirit in the church and the dwelling of God in the Eucharist in the church. Um, and that's why we keep that, you know, candle burning there uh, above the tabernacles to be reminded that the presence of God is in the church. Um, okay, you ready for the next part. Why is the church called the body of Christ? The church is called the body of Christ because all who belong to the church are united to Christ as their head and source of life and are united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. Okay. Um, so, uh, just a couple things here. Both in Romans and 1 Corinthians, as well as Ephesians, you have this language of uh, the church being the body of Christ. You also have this language of uh, those members of the church being united to Christ as a living head. Okay. Um, I mean, we can all sort of say that easily. It's Christ is what? The head of the church. Okay. Um, what does this mean? Um, you kind of have to put yourself in an ancient mode to get this because it's, it's, a, little, it's, a, little, uh, it's a little different from how we think about a head, right? We think about the head as like, oh, that's, what, that's where the thinking happens. Um, and, and in the ancient world, it kind of does. It kind of means that, but not entirely. Um, you actually do some thinking with your heart, too, in the ancient world. Um, you know, the will is not here, it's here uh, in the ancient world. Um, but I think it suffices to say that, that the, the capita, the head, is um, what directs. Uh, it's that which, which leads us. Um, uh, and we know this language, right? The, and probably the best, the, best, the best way that I could describe it in kind of modern terms is that every state has a capital. The nation has a capital, and they're spelled differently, you know that. <laughs> but what is it? It's the head city, right? It's the place where the administration happens. It's the place where decisions are made. It's the place where, uh, where the leadership is. It's the place where, uh, where the king lives. It's the place where, the, where all the stuff happens, right? Um, and everything else gets its... Uh, gets its identity and gets its, its uh, um, marching orders. That's a, that's a much better way to see that. Um, that's what it means for Christ to be the head of the church. Um, and source of life. <laughs> so uh, I think it's pretty obvious that if your head gets cut off, what happens? You're dead, right? And in the ancient world, the, the head was the source of life. Um, and uh, And that's important too, is that the source of the church's life is Jesus Christ, your living head. All right. And are united to one another in Christ for mutual love and service to him. And this is essential because uh, I, I, I noted this a little bit this morning already. Uh, the way many people see the church is like, oh, we agree, so therefore we're the church. Um, and they see Christian fellowship as uh, as a uh, um, as a, as a collection of binary one-to-one -one relationships, right? It's like, um, you know, Joel and I share the faith, I share the faith with you and you, and therefore we're the church. Um, and we're joined together one-to-one -one and therefore have a fellowship. No, 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 no. 
the way the New Testament describes it is, I am in Christ, and you are in Christ, and you are in Christ, and therefore we're the church. You see, um, we are joined to Christ, the living head. Um, it's not our agreement that establishes the church. Um, and that's a very hard thing for Americans to get, because it's like, wait, wait hold up. I'm, I'm joining this church because it most cl clearly reflects my beliefs. How is it that that's the deal? And we're gonna, I want to talk about that. Um, I would also say, too, that, uh, that the reason that we're united together and, and what, in fact, makes us able to love and serve one another is the grace of Christ operating in His church. Um, you know, Christians have often tried very hard to love one another with disastrous results. Um, uh, what is it that fosters the, 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 the familial love of the church? Well, it's the grace of Jesus Christ operating in the church. Um, so that's a big one. All right, let's, let's go forward to the next page. And I'm going to see if we can wrap this today. I'd love to do that, uh, but I have no, well, it's almost 1030 already, but we'll try. Um, what are the marks or, or characteristics of the church? The Nicene Creed expands upon the Apostles' Creed to list four characteristics of the church. It is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Here we leave the Apostles' Creed for a little bit just to go into the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed contains these four marks of the church, and they're important, and we're going to go through them. Uh, but they are that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So if I ever ask you, you know, what are the four marks of the church? Or if the bishop asks you, what are the four marks? You say, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, like, ah! and you get a gold star, and everybody who's an Oz, right, because you're so smart. Um, but, but this is huge. It's massive, right? Um, these marks of the church um, are, are where we, they really are where we need to focus when we think about what, uh, what and who the church is. Okay, so let's get going. In what sense is the church one? The church is one because all its members form the one body of Christ, having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The church is called to embody this unity in all relationships between believers. All right, so let's break it down. Um, one, all of this is to say that the, though there may be many churches, lowercase c, there is one church, capital C. And I, w I will say this, the church's identity, uh, you and I had a conversation a little bit about this last week. Um, it's, there's always a struggle here because following the Reformation and indeed before the Reformation, there were lots of battles about this. Okay, so what defines the church? Is it, is it the juridical structures all of the kind of uh, machinations that, that exist, all the kind of laws, canon laws, etc. Because if you're a Roman Catholic, that's where you line up. You just say, well, the, the church is defined by these structures, by these formal relationships, uh, by, you know, communion with this particular bishop, right? Um, and Anglicanism uh, takes a bit of a, a, a classically, I mean, if you're, Anglicanism always winds up being comprehensive. Um, there's another thing that happens in the Reformation, uh, which is to say, no, 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 the church isn't visible in that sense. I think you can't just sort of like look it up and say, well, who's there? The, the church is invisible, meaning you never know who the real Christians are, and so don't bother to find out. Like, <laughs> it's, it's basically like whatever is here, uh, whatever we see is almost like Classic uh, Anabaptist theology is essentially this. The church is a parody of the real thing. The real thing is in heaven. 
whatever is here is something we can't see. Uh, we, we can't really know who the real Christians are ever. Okay. Anglicanism takes a different tack. Is the church visible? Yes. Is the church invisible? Yes. <laughs> right? Why? Because the church is sacramental. So we should expect that the church will reflect both the visible and the invisible. Um, so, you know, how do we know who the Christians are? Well, we look in our baptismal records. Like, quite brutally, it's like, yeah, well, that's it. Um, what's that? Yeah, right, but we also kind of will, will press that a bit and say, um, you know, we don't, we don't really know. And, and part of this is just the kind of biblical and I would say Augustinian understanding of the church includes both saints and sinners. The church includes both uh, the wheat and the tares. Why? Um, because uh, because the, the the perfected body has not yet been perfected, <laughs> um, and uh, and that's just to say that that we're, we await that. Um, so it is a struggle, and it is a paradox. Actually, at the end of the day, um, it's actually more a mystery than anything else. Uh, but Paul is insistent upon this: one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is what makes the church one God and Father of all. And as Paul is making this, this great appeal to the Ephesians to understand their oneness in the faith, to understand that they are one body, um, he makes this appeal. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. First uh, Corinthians is another example of this. What makes you the body of Christ? You know, it's got nothing to do with, with, who, with you know, who you happen to be or who you happen to be with. It's got everything to do with what you're a part of. Um, what you're a member of. Um, and Anglicanism has always held that uh, when you are baptized, you are made a member of Christ, a member of the body, okay? Um, and this final sentence, the church is called to embody this unity in all relationships between believers is simply to say that this unity is meant to be uh, visible. It's meant to be uh, shown forth in the kinds of uh, relationships which we have. Um, which is to say that enmity between Christians is a great scandal, um, and, uh, and, uh, and fights between Christians are a great scandal. They, they don't show forth the reality that, that underlies us. Um, okay, why is the church called holy? The church is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells in it and sanctifies its members, setting them apart to God and Christ and calling them to moral and spiritual holiness of life. There's a great battle about this in the ancient church um, where... Some say the church is holy because her members don't sin. More particularly, her bishops are pristine. They don't sin. The Donatists were a group that basically said, if, if you allow someone who broke under the pressure of persecution to be a bishop, then you are no church at all. And the orthodox response was, no. The church is both saints and sinners. The efficacy of the sacraments does not depend upon the character or holiness of the, of the, of the, of the priest or minister. Thanks be to God, you know. Like, I just want to tell you this. Like, I am very thankful that you don't have to worry about what awful thing I said to my wife on the way out the door as to whether or not you're actually receiving the Eucharist today. That's pretty awesome. Um, now, I should be worried about it, okay? <laughs> Let me make that abundantly clear, right? I should be worried. Uh, but, but, 
Yeah, well, true, yeah. But, but I, I want you to hear that because, because one of the things I've learned as a priest is, you know, thanks be to God it doesn't depend on me. Because if it depended on me, I'd be screwed, and you would be too. Like, let's just make it abundantly clear. Like, there, we, would, we should all be worried about that. Okay? Um, but, but that's not the case. The, the church is not holy because her members are holy, okay? in the sense of being sinless. The church is holy because her members are set apart by God and called by God into this fellowship that exists because of God's grace and not because of our moral superiority. Okay? Um, we're set apart, um, and I should say this, we are, however, set apart for moral and spiritual holiness of life. But it is not that um, that is just automatically given. It's that it's that to which we strive. It's that to which we aim. It's that to which we're going. Um, and I think the basic way to put it is that our, you know sanctification for the Christian is not automatic. Normally, like I can think of very rare examples when God reaches down and just is like, "Zap! You're going to be holy for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not." And and uh, and you know there are people like Teresa of Avila, you know, and people like that. I mean very holy, very, very, very holy. Um, and there have you know, been just amazing examples of this. Um, but that's not most people. Most, for most people, the life of sanctification is a long road, and it takes a long time. And thanks be to God, it's a long time, because, you know, um, uh, it just, it shows God's patience with us. But it does not mean that we're not holy. <laughs> um, and I think the other, the other thing that I would say about this, too, is that a lot of the attitudes regarding the church, especially in America, which are sort of like, well, the church is, is evil, you know, or the, the church is, uh, is a hindrance to real faith, um, should be answered with great clarity, I think. Um, and, and my favorite one is, you know, Augustine. I love what Augustine says, and I'll be a little bit coarse here, but, but Augustine says, the church, well, she's a whore, but she's my mother. Like, <laughs> and I've always loved that, because it's just, it's just the truth, right? Like, I can look at the church and say, she's a stinking mess, but she's holy. You know, the church is a disaster, but she's my mother, right? There are things about parish life that drive me up a wall. Not as much as they used to, but they drive me up a wall still. Like, and I can just say, she's a mess, but I love her. You know, she's my mother. That'll never not be the case. Um, and, and part of it, too, is like, have you been mistreated by the church? You know, it's like, well, you've probably been mistreated by your mother, too, but it doesn't mean she's not your mother. Right? Um, because we forget who the sinner is in this equation. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, is, this is the big crazy part, right? Is that, you know, most of the time in human life, you know, it's, it's the man who screws up in a marriage. And just mo I'll just say most of the time, that's it. Now, it's not always the case, but, but sometimes it is. And so we're a bit shocked by this kind of language of, you know, Christ is the faithful one. But in Scripture, we see this, right? I mean, you know, you really want the, the straight skinny on this. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's the prophet Hosea. You know, it's this language of the church is a wandering wife. 
you know, the, God's people are a wandering people. They're, they're, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. It, it, and it recurs all throughout Scripture. You know, it's this, this um, uh, you know, God saying, I am Israel's, and in Hebrew it's Isha. I am, I am her husband. Um, and, and in Isaiah, there's language of, you know, she will call, I will call her married. Right? It's just constant uh, throughout Scripture. Um, I would remind you, too, that, um, uh, well, I mean, one of the things that we think about in Advent that comes out as a major Advent theme is John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist call himself? The friend of the bridegroom. Do you know who the friend of the bridegroom is in the ancient world? The friend of the bridegroom is like the chaperone for the bride prior to the wedding. It's usually best if the, if the uh, friend of the bridegroom is the bride's brother. Because what does the friend of the bridegroom do? The friend of the bridegroom assures the, br- the groom that the bride hasn't gotten in any, any trouble prior to the marriage. So he's... He's like, a, he's like a surety on the, the, the purity of the bride. That's what John's calling himself. Now, John is calling himself that, understanding that the bride is tainted. Yeah? He knows she's tainted. But that's what he's doing. He's calling the people to holiness. And he's like, prepare the way of the Lord. Make, you know, make straight paths in the desert, right? That's the language of John the Baptist is calling the people to repentance. And that's how he prepares the bride for marriage. Not by procuring her holiness and her perfection, but by, or her virginity for that matter, but what? Calling her to repentance. Okay, so that's a, good, that's a really good Advent theme. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock the next two out really quickly, and then we'll, I promise we'll go back to them next week. But um, at, the, at the risk of drawing Father Canary's ire, uh, I'm just going to do this. Why is the church called Catholic? Kataholos in the Greek means simply this, according to the whole. Kata means with, or according to, holos. I mean, come on, that's easy. This is like my, my big fat Greek wedding. Holos means whole, okay? Um, kata holos means according to the whole. Um, and Catholic means, quite simply, that which has been uh, taught always, everywhere, and by all. It's according to the whole of the church, not only uh, geog- geographically, uh, but according to um, uh, uh, time, space. Um, what is common to the, to the whole church is that which is Catholic. Okay, so I want to say that. You might have heard the word universal. I don't like that translation because it simply means like, well, it's got bad connotations, right? Kataholos means according to the whole, okay? So that, that which is Catholic is that which has been taught and received always, everywhere, by all. This is uh, the, the great uh, church father, Vincent of Lorraine, makes this uh, comment. He says, I've traveled throughout the whole world, if I've traveled throughout the whole church, and, and if you're wondering what Catholic means, this is what it means. Always, everywhere, and by all. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great definition. That's from the, from the uh, I believe it's the fourth century. Yes, time, I'm, I'm getting there. Apostolic. Apostolos is one who's sent with a message. Um, it's the same word where we get the word postal service, right? And, and I'll, I'll simply say this, you know, 
you tamper with somebody's mail, what do you call it? Mail fraud. It's a federal crime. It darn well should be, right? The apostolic message is unchanging. The apostles have no prerogative to alter it. They are sent out into the world like the mail with the message of the gospel. They have no, no prerogative to alter it, change it um, at all. Um, so the apostolic message means not only that we're sent to the ends of the earth, but that we have a message that's unchanging. Okay, we'll, we'll revisit the last two next week. Thank you. Yep. Uh, the ramp door? Yeah, I'll look at it. It's probably that somebody locked it because I had it unlocked.